0: Hello listeners, Matt George here. This September, we're launching a new podcast. In collaboration with Sensory Friendly Solutions, New Brunswick Community College, and Taking It Global, we're diving deep into the world of neurodiversity. We'll be talking to innovators, parents, and industry leaders about our noisy, bright, and overwhelming world to discover sensory-friendly living. The Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast is coming to you this September on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network. Hello, listeners. Good morning. Welcome to another episode of the Growing Pains podcast. This is the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlanta, Canada. I'm Matt George. And I'm David Campbell. David, I was reminiscing with you and on the podcast about the interesting origins of some of our biggest companies. And I told you, and I don't know why this is, but I told you, I think in my generation, I'm squarely a millennial, that these are undersold stories. I think these are important. We have some really impressive people and we have some really impressive firms in the region. And I know there's mixed PR between generations. That's just how she goes. But at the same time, they are undersold stories.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't have the right understanding of our big firms, whether it's McCain or or Irving, we're going to talk today about Irving Oil, Um, you know, they see them as large firms kind of dominating the market. The reality is these firms mostly generate almost no revenue in New Brunswick. They are competing globally. Uh, Mm -hmm. In most cases, they are, you know, in the case of Irving Oil, they're, you know, it's relatively one of the smaller players in their industry. Uh, so you know they're competing just like any other firm for business around the globe. So th- I think it's important to tell their stories to a new generation, and we're happy to do uh, uh, the Irving Oil story today. So yeah, I'd like to introduce our audience to to uh, Dr. Donald Savoie. Uh, I think some of our younger audience probably have f- heard his name but don't know his backstory. Uh, I would suggest he is one of the most prolific writers on public policy and economic development in Canada, certainly in Atlantic Canada, he's published over 40 books. I am a piker. I've only read 12 of them. uh, But uh, all 12 were incredibly good uh, reads. His book, Visiting Grandchildren, Economic Development in the Maritime, should be required reading. And I actually wrote a blog post about this a few years ago where I said, Every high school student should have to read that book and actually study that book in high school. And I think if they did, they'd have an appreciation for this region that they just don't get in school today. So I think uh, anybody who's looking for primers uh, on economic development in the region, they should pick up one of his 40 books, 40 plus books. His uh, memoir, I'm from Bakhtushmi, is very good as well. I encourage you to read that one if you want to understand his backstory and w- what motivates him and what drives him and what has driven him for for now over 40, closer to 50 years now in public policy studies. Finally, I'll say he was called the father of ACOA because some of the work he did uh, back uh, in the 80s led to the establishment of ACOA, which has been a durable Regional Economic Development Agency in Atlantic Canada. Before ACOA, we went through a whole bunch of different iterations of regional economic development from the federal government. ACOA has been quite stable. So I am very happy to introduce uh, Dr. Donald Savoy this morning to our audience. And I'm sure we're going to have a great discussion about his new book uh, on the story of uh, Arthur Irving and Irving Oil. Donald, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you for having me. And thanks, uh, uh, David, for those kind words.
0: Donald, before we dig into your origin story, we love origin stories on this podcast, especially in the Atlantic region. Why do you think visiting grandchildren was so impactful?
2: Well, I, we, there was very little in terms of the literature on uh, Atlantic Canada in terms of economic development. And I recall reading um, an historian from Ontario... Uh, a confederation, and he said that those from Atlantic Canada who were involved in the Charlottetown Conference and Quebec Conference were mentally unstable, um, and, and that kind of upset me. So I started to get into uh, sort of history uh, of confederation, how Atlantic, Atlantic Canada came to pass. And I realized that the uh, that the reps from Atlantic Canada were anything but unstable. They were very stable. They saw flaws, uh, you know, in the deal, and they opposed it. Now, folks from Ontario, and Quebec, or Canada, Western Canada, East at the time, took exception to that. But uh, the Premier of New Brunswick at the time, the Premier of Nova Scotia at the time, two Connolly said, "We have a problem." PEI said, "This deal stinks. We're walking out." promised in Newfoundland, or the we of Newfoundland said, this deal doesn't work for us. They walked out. It wasn't because they were unstable. It was because they saw major flaws. And we've lived with those flaws. And I wanted to set the record straight.
0: Do you remember why you chose that title? I love the title.
2: Yes. Well, it was inspired by, of all people, Stephen Harper. Okay. Uh, and he said, "But well, we got to have a policy in place that Maritimers don't go uh, visiting grandchildren, you know, from away. Mm. So uh, it was depopulation uh, of the maritime provinces that he wanted to reverse, mm. and that was a nice title: visiting grandchildren.
0: Yes, indeed, I love the story of our region. You know, do you listen to the Irish Descendants or Darcy Broderick?
2: No, I don't.
0: Well, the Irish Descendants are are a wonderful Newfoundland folk band. And Darcy Broderick is the lead singer, and he sings a song called Will They Lie There Evermore. And it's about the 92 Cod Moratorium in Newfoundland, and half my yeah. heritage is from Newfoundland. And it runs so deep with us that my grandfather, he's, he's gone now, but my late grandfather and my father can barely listen to that song or Darcy Broderick singing in general without welling up because it talks about the first time that young Newfoundlanders went to Ontario when the boats were hauled up on the shore. So I love hearing stories about that. And, and the origin story of your book is a good one. I'm going to pick it up.
2: Great. Uh, thank you. Yes, indeed. You uh, about, about singers, I, I don't know many singers. I have to tell you a story. Yeah. I, I was with the John Bragg at his house, and uh, he was outside. And uh, somebody mentioned, mentioned uh, Jamie Buffett. I said, "Who's Jimmy Buffett?" <laughs> and, and somebody said, "You're not serious." My wife said, "Yeah, he's serious. He doesn't know who Jimmy Buffett." Is. And somebody said, "Well, think of Bagaritoville." Magar- yes, so I saw back outside. I went over. I said, "John, do you know who Jimmy Buffett is?" He looked at me a puzzled look. Said, "Would he be Warren Buffett's son?" <laughs>
1: said,
2: no, you're no
1: better than me. Too busy to too busy writing books to worry about music. To know <laughs> yeah
0: yes indeed donald can you can you give us a bit of your personal origin story was this was this written in the stars were you always going to write books about the maritimes or was there some inflection period that said this is what i'm going to get into
2: well actually i grew up in a very small village that's outside of Booktosh, and um, my mother was a school teacher my father was an entrepreneur and very early on friends wanted to play for the montreal canadians or boston red sox i was not very good in sports and so, very early on, I decided I was, I, I loved to write. So, at a very young age. And then I came of age when Louis de Bichon became premier. And that had a major impact on on, on me and uh, folks in my generation. And so, it gave me an opportunity to go to university because it's Louis that founded uh, my university here, University of Moncton. And then I went to UNB and then Oxford. And I always, in the back of my mind, that's what I wanted to do from day one. And so, it's just sort of continuing what i what I dreamt of doing and what I'm doing now.
0: Yes, indeed, and we're here to talk about one of your specific publications, your latest book. And Dave, I'll let you lead us into a conversation around that. It's fascinating. I know I'm in the in the nucleus of the Irving world right now. I'm in Uptown St. John, and so I'm 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 keen to hear this story, and I can't wait to chat with you about the book.
1: Yeah, the book's called "Thanks for the Business: Casey Irving, Arthur Irving, and the Story of Irving Oil." And I want to ask you what motivated you to write it. I mean, it's a very personal book and a very personal story. So you don't, you state, state right up front, this isn't some sort of objective biography. You know, you're telling a story here. You talk about your personal relationship with Arthur uh, and his wife and the family. So it's a very, and that sort of personal relationship is infused throughout the book. So what motivated to you to write it, write this book?
2: Well, for the same reason, that motivated me to write the story of Harrison McCain and McCain pulled. Harrison McCain was a good friend. And like both of you, I'm fascinated by entrepreneurs from uh, Atlantic Canada who really to be successful, they really have to pull against gravity. Uh, Gravity is not here. Gravity is in Ontario. It's in New England, but it's certainly not here. And so to have a good go at it, they have to work extra hard. They have to put in the extra effort. And so when I looked at Casey Irving, who started in my hometown, 1924, built a service station, and he was kicked out because he was selling too many Fords, and he said, you got to get out of here. And so he had a choice between Halifax and St. John. He chose St. John because he wasn't that far away. And then you look at the struggle that he had against Imperial Oil, against CN, against Crown Corporation, against the federal government. He fought massive battles on behalf of the region, on his behalf as well, which is what the private sector is all about. And so I was fascinated by that, and I wanted to get into it. I got to know Arthur and Sandra 20 years ago. I became very good friends. And I recall being in Saint-Quentin, which is in northern New Brunswick, and I stopped for gas. And I had my cell phone, and while I was gassing up, Sandra Irving called me about the Royal Society Matter And I said, well, it's ironic. I'm gassing up at an Irving service station. And within seconds, Arthur was on the phone. He grabbed it. That Donald, thanks for the business, which he always says, could you go in there and find out if the toilets are clean, the bathrooms are clean? Wow. And could you talk to the manager, he's a good guy, say hi. I went in there and the washroom was indeed clean and I talked to the manager, who was indeed a good guy and I thought about it after. This, this Arthur Irving, who has a massive business that now stretches from New England to Ireland to Newfoundland to New Brunswick, um, he grabbed the phone and the attention to detail, to make sure the clients are, are happily served or well served, that struck me. And then I started to dig into it. And that was Casey Irving's. That was his father's influence. He said, look, the only way we're gonna beat the big boys, as he called them, the only way we're gonna beat Imperial Oil is to have a better level of service so that the clients will wanna come back because of our level of service, because going, Manu to Manu against the big boys, but they have their own refinery, their own transportation system. We have to buy oil and gas from them. It's not going to work, so we have to have an edge. And that edge was service, and uh, and it's continued. So when I started to put all that together, I said, "There's a good book here," and off I went.
1: So you, the Harrison McCain book, of course, is excellent. It it it's good because it not only tells the story of Harrison and McCain's, but it also Weaves in a broader narrative about New Brunswick and innovation and the inter- interplay between even even the government and 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 McCain over the years and so on. So I think there's a you come away from that book just knowing more about New Brunswick. Was that your goal here as well, to tell a broader story about competition, about entrepreneurship, about how to compete from Atlantic Canada?
2: Yes. And the other thing i I discovered about Harrison McCain is that he was a deeply, deeply, deeply committed Maritimer in New Brunswick. Deep went to the core, far more than people appreciate. The Roy Thompson Hall in Toronto, they called him because they were looking for money. And they said, if you give us a million dollars back then, we'll name the hall after you. He said, no, no, if you name it the Fornansville Dance Hall, I'm in. <laughs> a million dollars. That, his point was, no, I, if I'm going to give a million dollars, it's going to be yeah. to New Brunswick or to the Maritime Provinces. And Harrison McCain and the Irvings have given a great deal to hospitals, universities, and so on, not to Toronto. Because as Harrison said, they have enough money up there. They don't need me. This region needs me. And it permeates what they do and what they think. Uh, bear in mind that Harrison McCain's first five years was working for Casey Irving. So he picked hmm. up the way of the business uh, from his mentor.
0: What did you, Donnell? Did you know KC as a person or did those timelines not line up?
2: They did line up, but I was a kid. Uh, yeah. And I remember when he came to Bukdush, and because uh, in the summertime, we always came to Bukdush, I remember him very well. My father knew him. And um, I went to the general store, um, and I remember we called vividly the Irving Service Station, the first that was built. My father used to stop there for gas. And I did see him, I think talk, they talked to him once but I did not know him well.
0: Mm -hmm. The reason I ask, and we're going to get into what your thesis is about these entrepreneurs and about the company in general, but when I think about the big-time maritime entrepreneurs, I'm 28 years old, just started a business in this region, intend to stay in this region. I'm interested in in what these people were like as people. You mentioned the attention to detail. I imagine some serious hard-headedness to be able to go up against some global players. When you think about Arthur probably specifically, if you knew him well, what are they like as people? It, 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 it fascinates me to think about what their MO is and what they're like as people.
2: Uh, several things, I know Arthur very well. He's become a very good friend. Uh, I have a lot of time, I see him a fair bit. Um, there's a couple of things that always strikes me about Arthur. He's 90 years old. His level of energy is incredible. I, I can't imagine at 90 that, that will have that level of energy. I tell the story about going to a ball game at Fenway Park. I'm a big Red Sox fan from way back. And we were, it's an amazing story. It tells a lot about Arthur. We left at 11 o'clock uh, and we uh, got there and he said, we have to be back. We'll, we won't see the full nine innings because I have to be in University of to New Brunswick at, at six. So we landed in Boston, like mm-hmm. Logan rather than the other place. And we get there within about a kilometer from you know from Fenway Park. And it was a lot of traffic, but well, uh, you there's a ball game that there's a lot of traffic. so "We'll walk." So we got out of the car. He walked a kilometer. Remember, he's ninety years old, and he wasn't slowing down. <laughs> seventh inning. Thank God, the Red Sox won that day. But the seventh inning, said, "We got to go." Off we went. Landed uh, in Moncton. Went to Richard At eight o'clock, was done. There was five or Sandra was there. So it was five or six of us said, "Let's go see the." Um, Uh, Where the Irvings first landed, and one of them said, "Well, no, I'm too tired. I got to go home." And so we said, "Okay, well, let's fly back toward. I want to see Bokdose, so we flew over Bokdose, and they dropped me off at nine o'clock. At seven the next day, seven, seven thirty the next day. Sandra wrote me an email: "Arthur is at it again. He's off to Gaspy. He's got some business dealing there." (laughs) At morning, the next morning at seven. This guy's ninety years old. There's a level of energy that's incredible, Um, and Second, the attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, he will ask the most minute of questions. I've been into a, a couple of Irving stations you know, with, with him, and what he goes at it, uh, it's fascinating. He'll ask the, the most detailed of questions that I wouldn't think about.
0: Um, this reminds me, Donald, of Elon Musk. I hear stories of Elon Musk that, sure, he's out there evangelizing all of the big firms that he's building, but... On the ground, people have said that he'll go into Tesla HQ or to one of the factories and he'll ask legitimate engineering questions. So this is not just, like you say, this is not just evangelizing and being the face of it all. He knows the detail. He knows the business intimately. This is, it sounds like what you're describing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, he, you know, um, you, can, you can ask him any question about Irving war dating back to 1924
1: yes, the answer i would say one of the key lessons is highly successful people like that tend to understand the value of time and i think that's a great story then all about about how arthur understands the value of time you know they don't spend a lot of time lazing around uh, people that are successful like uh, arthur um i wanted to ask you a bit about the size of Irving oil, because we, you know, the Irvings, and you touch on this in the book a couple of times that, you know, Irvings for some people in New Brunswick, even some political parties, there was one of the political parties this week was complaining about Irving oil. Um, you know, they're considered to be this big bully. That's kind of, you know, dominating New Brunswick and making profit on the backs of New Brunswickers and so on. Uh, you cover that nicely in the book. I'd like you to summarize that because I I, I believe that that um, you know because they compete in a global marketplace because almost all of their revenue is generated outside of New Brunswick. It's very hard to suggest that they're somehow gouging New Brunswickers to make all their money. So I, I'd like to be hear what you think about Irving Oil as this big sort of monolithic um, dominant player in New Brunswick specifically.
2: Well, if you're sitting in Bathurst, Hartland, or Bookdosh. You look at Irving Oil and you say that's a giant company, and it is by by Hartmann Debenzick standard. Um, but in the general scheme of things, in the uh, in the energy sector, there are nothing more than a bit player. The, if you compare them to Exxon, BP, Shell, they're just not in the game. And I would I would venture to guess if you go to head office in Texas and talk to Exxon people, you talk about Irving Oil. On the seventh floor, they may they may know who, you know who these who these people are, but on the executive floor, they don't worry about urban Oil. They're just a, a small player. They don't have the, the, uh, the kind of oil reserves that Exxon, BP, and Shell have. They're a retail company. Uh, they process raw product. That they import from Saudi Arabia, Africa, and Western Canada, and that's it. So they're not they're not a giant in the field. They're a giant business in New Brunswick. Second, in terms of gouging the Brunswick, I disagree with that. Just look at their head office uh, in St. John. It's an amazing building. It's an absolutely amazing building. It's a head office. And the head office, David, as you know very well, the head office means the world to, the, to a community. It's, it anchors a community. But they, they've, they've settled in St. John. They could have settled in Halifax. They could move to Toronto. Same as Harrison McCain. there was under no circumstances was he going to move head office uh, into Toronto. He, t- he told me the story with bankers that went to, that went to see him, and they said because he used to talk fast. He said Harrison, Harrison, you got to move, got to move. Florenceville's too small. The way he answered, I can't say it because it's too profane. <laughs> laced. Well, the urbans are the same. They're deeply committed to Brunswickers. Mm-hmm. They've created twenty thousand private sector jobs in this province. Uh, and that means a lot. So, are they competitive? Absolutely. Will they take advantage of any situation? Absolutely. That's what businesses do. They want to compete. And as Arthur Irving said, if we don't compete and win, we're used to, to everybody. We're no use to anybody. He's mm-hmm. right. If they lose, if we lose Irving Oil, what good is that going to be to anybody? Hmm.
0: I can't imagine that Harrison McCain or Arthur Irving care much about what other people think. But it strikes me as that's probably an underrated aspect of their story in entrepreneurship is their deep love for this part of the world.
2: Matthew, two things there. Absolutely. their are deep love for the Maritimes. It's something uh, John Bragg too that I that have got to know well. They are deeply committed Maritimers. I thought I was a deeply committed Maritimer. I am. Right it goes to the core of who I am. But these guys are deeply committed. Second, about a uh, criticism, Arthur Irving has a very, very thick skin. Uh, he doesn't he really doesn't care what people say about Irving oil. Or, that's not what he's that's not what motivates him. I've raised it with him a couple of times. He just blows it away. He's got bigger issues. So somebody in Timbuktu is taking a shot at Irving Hall. That does not worry him in the the Middle East. He he is not attracted to the media as much as people might think. He doesn't read the media about negative stuff, about the Irving story, or even positive stuff. That's not where he's at. So in his mind, he's got bigger issues to deal with. And there's a famous line about... uh, uh, somebody was taking shots uh, at the Irvings, and uh, somebody answered. Um, the dogs keep barking. The caravan rolls on. And that's, <laughs> they can bark all they want. Arthur's gonna roll on.
1: Yes, indeed. So we had uh, last week. We had a, a historian by the name of Dimitri Anastakis on to talk about Bricklin. He's in the process of writing an, another book on Malcolm Bricklin. And one of the things that he said, which I didn't know, was that one of the reasons in his mind why that project failed was the inability of Brickland to be able to attract top talent to New Brunswick. That that this sort of senior level management people that you would need to run an auto manufacturer wouldn't move to New Brunswick. They just wouldn't move uh, here. And you have a whole chapter uh, in your book on the Irving School of Business and the focus on talent and, and nurturing and, and and growing talent as a driver of success in um, Irving Oil. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what this Irving School of Business is and why it's so important to the company?
2: Well, Brickland, uh, that might be one reason why it failed. I think there's a few more. Uh, I look forward to reading the book, but uh, I can think of, uh, I can think of, Two or three, but off top of my head, um, the Irvings are deeply rooted in the province of New Brunswick. They have a history. Brickland had no history. Um, the Irvings are are in the oil and gas business and the forestry business. That's part of New Brunswick history. There was people who were brought up uh, in the forestry sector. When you start business in 1924, there were not too many people in the oil and gas business, so they were able to build. A knowledge base in that sector, a knowledge base uh, in Saint John, so it stayed there. So it's vastly different than importing a business with no history and no and no no background. Uh, and so the Irvings and the McCains, potatoes and forestry and oil and gas, There's a deep there's a deep history there. But also um, the way the Irvings deal with people and Matt would know because he worked with TDI, but they 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 do give every opportunity to grow. They've imported their own uh, MBA program. So they give opportunities to their staff to grow, to learn, um, and uh, there's a human resources planning element. I've seen it uh, in terms of urban world. People know where they're going. They know what they expect. They know what is expected of them, and they perform. If they don't perform, they have a problem. Um, and, and so that's the Irving School of Business. You have to be competitive. You have, as, as Arthur said to his employees, you have to know how to put the puck in the net. And that's what drives them. If they're competitive, if they give, they give it all, they will have learning opportunities, they'll have employment opportunities, and they will grow. If they can't perform at that level, they have a problem.
0: Yeah, I can attest to that 100%. I know we're talking about different companies here, but the mentality is the same even though I didn't stay long because our missions didn't line up within four months, I think it was maybe five, I guess I had some small shred of talent. I was in a mentorship program and I was learning from unbelievable leaders. And to this day I'm connected to some of the people in management there, not only because they're community members, but, but it was an incredible place to work in that respect on out. And so I, yeah. I, I totally take that point. And I mean, it wasn't. I wasn't going to be a lifer. It didn't work for me. But at the same time, it, you're certainly right. They're they're really that can't be understated enough. The leadership is strong, and they give you every chance to to prove yourself and grow. In fact, I think one of the first meetings that I was in, some of the material was going forward onto Jim, and I was working under the CIO, or maybe he's the CTO. I'm not sure what the title is, but this is Doug McCaskill, great leader. And I didn't say anything in the meeting because I was young and I didn't think you're supposed to contribute when you're in the room with those kind of people. And, and Doug took me aside after the meeting and said, Matt, you see that contract that says permanent staff. You're expected to have an opinion here. I mean, we, we hired you. You're permanent staff. You're expected to come correct and have an opinion. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of trust to put in a 23 year old business analyst. But at the same time, I really appreciated that. And I carry that with me to this day.
2: That's that's a that's a good story, and it speaks to Irving Wall as well. Because uh, Arthur, when there's a big decision, he'll call people in the room, and from the most junior level to the most senior level, they all have a say. And uh, at times when the decision was to be made, not anymore because it's not as present, but he used to have a vote, a secret vote. How would you call this thing? And so somebody that was 24 years old had the same vote as somebody who was 60 and was CFO. That's the way they were the the management levels don't mean that much to them they can go they can go down in the organization and get the answer
0: before we get on to the future of the company which i think is equally interesting and, and i don't know dave you tell me if we if we touched enough on talent but one of the things that i think about when when dave and i talk about the differences between generations why does my generation at times have a negative attitude towards some of our biggest firms. I've thought about this a lot. I don't know if it's a general mistrust of institutions that we have as young people. And I say we to to show camaraderie, but I don't necessarily put myself in that camp. I find I often don't fit. But at the same time, is it a general mistrust of big institutions? Or is this something that's endemic to, to my generation? There seems to be a mistrust of these big firms and I'm not sure why.
2: Are you asking me or David?
1: Both. Donald, you go first.
2: Well, look, there is a there is a mistrust. Um, I think there's some valid reasons for this mistrust. Let's start with government. I don't I don't think government has performed at the level that people expected to perform. Um, as a case in point, the federal government has 250,000 employees. They don't perform. An organization with 250,000 employees. Right. So young people see that, and older people see that as well. Um, second, there is there is a there is a problem. Uh, there is a problem of uh, sharing of wealth. Now, I'm a big believer that you have to create wealth in order to share it, and that's why I think the Irvings and the McCain's have done great service to my region because if you create wealth, then you can you can have better public service and so on. But we've seen it in the world there's, there's some excellent studies have been produced that we better take a look at the mm-hmm. at the uh, so disparities between income, between individual and so on. That's a major problem. 30 years ago, it was regional disparities. I think that is less of a problem today, and I can get into that if you wish. So they look at the system, and say the system is not as fair as it might be. Third, I think the younger generation see problems uh, with climate change in a way that my generation did not live it, did not see it, and we still don't see it as well. Whereas the younger generation said, there's a problem here. We need to deal with this issue. Um, so you combine all that, I think I think there is there is some legitimate concern on behalf, of, on behalf of the younger generation to say, there's a problem here, let's try to fix it.
1: Yeah, I, I would just say I, I hope the younger generation doesn't lose interest in markets and capitalism because I think and I think maybe we need to do a better job of educating young people about that but that sort of has been fundamental to the success of the globe you know ever since for for many 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 years certainly since the second world war so donald's right sometimes that leads to disparities in income and other and environmental impacts and other effects but on balance, it's been incredibly good. Even Saint John, Saint John has a higher share of the population earning two hundred thousand than any other city in New Brunswick, and that has a lot to do with obviously the head office of Irving Oil and, and of course JDI. So there's lots of that, you know, lots of good paying head office jobs in Saint John as a result of the Irving companies. But I do think that there, you know, young people I worry are are losing a little bit of faith, as, as, as was said, in institutions, maybe even in democracy. So you'll hear young people talking about, um, you know, allowing autocracy if it can be used to further environmental goals and things like that. So, I, I, you know, because democracy can be messy, right? It's, it's about trying to find some middle ground. Um, so I don't know. I, th- I think it's about education. I think that the bottom line is most young people today did not grow up in a world of, of war, of, of, of penury uh, in our region and in Canada, and they take some of that stuff for granted. So I think we, we need to do a better job of educating young people on the importance of democracy, on the importance of, of markets. And sure, how do we share the proceeds of, of, of growth and of success? That's a conversation we have, absolutely have to have. But at the end of the day, if you look at every dollar spent, let's say at the refinery, so if you look at every dollar spent, somewhere around 60 cents of that will show up as labor income across the country, right? All the way back to the, to the production of oil in, in, in Alberta uh, and suppliers and everything else. So the profit margins on that dollar are probably somewhere around 4 or 5 cents. So the actual owners of the capital... Uh, you know, in a good year it'll be higher, and a bad year it'll be lower. But the actual owners of capital will only take about five to eight cents out of every dollar, net of taxes and net of every other expense. So, really, if you look at it from that perspective, most of the money being generated by these companies is going back into the into the pockets of people and into the tax revenue paid. So, we need to do a better job of showing how economic activity uh, benefits everybody. Uh, and then you certainly have a conversation about environmental issues, as Donald said, climate change, and, and also uh, making sure that, um, you know, that the, 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 the profits, uh, uh, you know, that there's some some fairness there, too, as well.
2: Well, David, I got to jump. Uh, you're absolutely correct. <laughs> uh, you've said it extremely well. If we lose sight of the merits of democracy, if we lose sight of the merits of capitalism, we lose sight of who we are. Uh, there is no better system. Now, climate change is key. There was a, a, a younger chap, probably Matt's age, maybe a bit older, who did a review of the Irving book in the Globe and Mail. And he took me the task because I only spent seven pages on climate change. My book was not about climate change, it was Irving. He, he concluded, because it was quite revealing, saying the Irvings have a net wealth of $7 billion. Yes, thanks for the business indeed. As if it was bad for the Irvings to have a net worth of seven billion. Good for them. Not only good for them. Good for us. And so, but that generation doesn't quite see the same merit. Now, have we undersold the importance of capitalism, the importance of democracy? Perhaps. Uh, can we be? Can 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 they challenge? Uh, you know, the system to do better in terms of climate and so on. Yes, but never lose sight of the merit the fundamental merit of democracy and capitalism. If we do that, then we might as well all pack it in and go back to book
0: a, a big portion of what you're both saying, and it's 100% true, just walking in these circles and having younger siblings, an obsession with fairness, and that if you have accumulated a lot of stuff, you must have taken stuff from the pie. But the problem with that line of thinking is Sure, we can do capitalism better and make it fair and equitable and address climate change and all of that. But there is an infinite sized pie. There's no such thing as one size of the pie. The pie can grow infinitely. And so I worry about this obsession with, with what people have. And especially if it becomes a political tool, because I think this is Naval Ravikant, but he said if, it's a, if money becomes a political bargaining chip, then it's only a matter of time. Before the 51 vote themselves everything the 49 has. We can't walk down that road. It scares me to walk down that road. And he also says that the slippery slope fallacy isn't a fallacy. You just haven't thought it through, <laughs> which is a is a really good quote. If the slope is slippery, it's extremely slippery and we're going down. So I yeah, will Go
2: good point, Matt. I would only add to what you just said. Excellent point. I'm fascinated by New Brunswickers who don't see a problem with BP, Shell, and Exxon. Making billions, billions, uh, dwarfing for Irving Oil, but having problems with Irving Oil. That's the that's the reconciliation that I'm that I'm struggling with. If we if we need money for universities and hospitals, we knock we knock on what on, on what door? I know because I've had some. I co-chair fundraising campaigns. We always go to the McCain, the Irving, Exxon, BP, and Shell. I don't ever recall any of them giving to UNB or to University of Moncton or to Mount Allison. They're far away. And yet, New Brunswickers seem to have less problems with faraway ferns than they have with local ferns. That baffles me.
0: It might also be because it's easy as well. I've learned through my life so far. I haven't had nearly as much experience as as you have, Donald. And so I, I love to defer to experience and expertise. But there's no such thing as someone doing better than you talking down to you. I've never had someone in my life who's doing great tell me that I'm doing the wrong thing just trying to trying to start this business or trying to make a go of it in the Maritimes. Punching up, I think, is just its easy and it's comfortable. And so maybe the biggest target in the room is just naturally the one that's going to attract the most darts.
2: Yeah, good point.
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges we just – most New Brunswickers don't travel enough. I'm in Ontario this week and just walking around a city the size of Kingston, which is not that large, you see massive, massive homes, homes you wouldn't see – in New Brunswick, there's just a lot more conspicuous wealth across Ontario, and I don't think there's nearly as much uh, griping about uh, people making a little money up here. So we do need, that might be partially a maritime issue, but I think we need to celebrate our successful entrepreneurs. One of the focuses of this podcast, Donald, is to think about where entrepreneurs come from and how they create that surplus wealth, right, from their investments of time and capital. Uh, and so I guess the next question for you would, would, would be related to the outlook for, uh, the Irving oil company and the Irvings in general in New Brunswick, they are right now, they seem to be doubling down. They've purchased, as you said, a refinery in Ireland, they're purchasing one in Newfoundland. Um, but probably if you look out 30, 40, 50, 60 years, the dynamic for refined oil products, is going to be fundamentally changed. And I think, you know, a decade ago, Irving was looking at renewable energy and some other types of investments. So what, what's, your, what's your vision here? What do you think the future will be for Irving Oil? If we came back and had this conversation in, I don't know, 40 years from now, do you think they're going to be still here investing in the region, or do you think they will have sold out? And like, what, what's your vision for Irving Oil and the Irvings uh, in the next generation and, and beyond?
2: I think they will be here. I hope that they will be here. Uh, to your question, I asked uh, I asked Arthur once, do you, do you think about climate change and the future of Irving Law? And he said, every day, every day I think about it. So they're onto this. Um, a year or so ago, uh, a few of them went to California, sat down with Tesla, and they signed an agreement, exclusive agreement, the Tesla charging stations in Atlantic Canada will only be at Irving Old service Station. So, uh, so they 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 have that market. And I said, Arthur, is there much money charging uh, cars with electricity? Poof. Oh, his answer was that when you charge a car, a Tesla, or uh, at, a, at a at a station, you you're going to be there for fifteen twenty minutes. What are you going to do? You're going to go in grab a sandwich. You're gonna go in buy a chocolate bar, and you're gonna go in, grab a coffee. And the margin on coffee is pretty is pretty good. And so th- they are planning this. They they see the future and they wanna they want a big part of it. They're also in New England. They've opened three or four months ago a convenience store, uh, Irving's, just outside Boston, and that will have a charging station. It will have some pumps. Um, and if you want to look at the future, I think you look at urban Oil as uh, as looking to convenience stores, to charging stations, and also to uh, pump stations. Because cars are not going to disappear. We're going to be burning gas and oil for the next 50 years at least. So they're looking at it and they're they're branching out to capture whatever opportunities the other option may offer. They'll be there.
0: A mentor of mine, Donald, is a former Irving Oil executive, and he's now an energy entrepreneur. and He does some things with big governments like Ontario and big firms like Husky. He's still relatively young, but um, but stepped away after a good career at Irving Oil. and We talked about this very thing and how this isn't going to be the kind of transition where you just flip the light switch, because it might it will probably be a disaster if we do so. It's a transition. But the firms like Irving Oil that recognize the transition is upon us, even if it's a 50-year outlook and starting to take steps to eventually move the dial, that in my mind can only be seen as positive. And it doesn't surprise me at all that he thinks about it. Of course he thinks about it.
2: Yeah. And and he's surrounded by some pretty good people. I know senior executives at Irving Oil. I've talked to them over the years. I interviewed them for this book. They're a pretty bright bunch. They know what the future holds. They know They know what's the best way to get there.
1: So you think they'll be deploying capital here and continuing to employ New Brunswickers and, and invest in philanthropy and things for well into the future?
2: Yes, I have no doubt about
1: that. So one last question on this before we pivot to the election, because we do want to take the last few minutes to talk to you about your thoughts there. Um, do you think we'll ever see a generation of entrepreneurs like that generation? You know, the McCains, the Braggs, the Irvings, but even among the Acadian entrepreneurs, right? And I don't know if you and I have ever talked about that, but there were so many very successful Acadian entrepreneurs in manufacturing and construction and uh, and so on. Do you think that's done or do you think that there is potential for a new generation of highly ambitious entrepreneurs to rise up here uh, in New Brunswick?
2: No, it's not done. Uh, in fact, I'm quite encouraged by what I'm seeing. Look at Matt. Matt is an entrepreneur. There's a lot of Mats around. we got to encourage them. we got to applaud them. we got to say, go for it. Um, also, amongst Acadians, and I happen to know most of them, what we're seeing now is a second generation of entrepreneurs. And so the people who were successful in the manufacturing sector, they have sons and daughters who are taking over. They're doing quite well. And so, no, the future is much better than the past. And I'm delighted to see a mad go at it. I'm delighted to see entrepreneurs giving it a good crack. And who knows? Who knows where the next John Bragg or Casey Irving or Harrison McCain, but they're they're there. Second, I think the younger generation is starting to see what the older generation were not able to see for obvious reasons. They're looking at a market in New England, $200 200 uh, from Boston to New York and so on, and say, that's, it, that's, it, that's a heck of a nice, uh, nice market. My father's generation couldn't access that market. This generation can access it much easier. And so the future looks pretty bright to me.
1: Do you think that trade will be more oriented north-south as opposed to east-west? Because you wrote a lot about that in your in your earlier books.
2: Yeah, no doubt. And we're starting to see signs of it. And uh, see, Matt can look to New England in a way that my father couldn't. My father was an entrepreneur. There was no way, he didn't have access. That market was shut down, deliberately shut down. That's no longer the case. I give an entrepreneur a chance to go at it, they'll go at it.
0: And Donald, I think you're right in the sense too that the Maritimes has become a really interesting proving ground for internet entrepreneurs. You can try to prove the model Or do the MVP in the region, but if you're going to achieve any kind of scale, you must leave, and that does. It's not necessarily leaving physically anymore, which is great. I hope to always be based out of this region, but you're absolutely right. I mean, exporting services to to the American Northeast is going to be critical for for legitimate scale. Yeah.
1: So, Donal, we want to ask you finally here about the election. Now, we don't want you to prognosticate about who you think might win or lose or whatever. We're not. This isn't a political. Uh, Podcast, But we do want to get your thoughts around what you'd like to see from the politicians, you know, related to all of your work around economic growth and and, and, and regional development and so on. So what, what are you looking for when you when you listen to politicians, when you read their platforms? What, what would you like to see uh, at this point in our at this juncture in our history here in New Brunswick?
2: Well, uh, Tories think I'm a liberal. Liberals think I'm a Tory, so I don't mind getting into this. Um, I haven't been accused of being a supporter of the Green Party, the NDP, yet, but they may come. Uh, We are living a very difficult moment for the pandemic. But post-pandemic is a new world. And I happen to think that that new world favors New Brunswick. I happen to think that uh, people in large cities are saying there's a better way to live. They've lived through the pandemic in a way that they've suffered in a way that we Maritimers have not. I was talking to Wade McLaughlin yesterday, uh, former premier PEI, and he somebody moved in next door to him from Ontario. He just said, that's it, we're, we're leaving. They're from a big city uh, in Ontario. They're not retired. They're entrepreneurs, uh, have jobs. And they said, we want we want to live where there's a quality of life. So they're moving. They'll be able to work from home. Uh, and I think there's golden opportunities for that. And so the post-pandemic period, uh, in my view, is a lot brighter than the than the pre-period. Brighter for the maritimes, not as bright for large cities. What does that mean? I I don't think New Brunswick, I don't think New Brunswick can walk towards proper uh, prosperity by restraint. I don't think we can cut spending to prosperity. I certainly do not want to the kind of spending that we've seen for no reasons. Um, but I do expect that we, we to invest in the things that post pandemic world will point to some opportunities. I don't think we can shut the door. I'm not a big fan of uh, infrastructure spending, even if Ottawa pays 50, 60, 70%. And that's a that's a full paradise because the day those roads are done, Ottawa walks away, we're left with maintaining them and we don't, have a lack of roads in New Brunswick. We have a lack of people. Uh, Ontario has too many people, not enough roads. Fix their problem. not Don't fix our problem because they have a problem. We have a different challenge. And so if we could do it, if we do it wisely, there's opportunities uh, post-pandemic world for the Marathon, for New Brunswick, and I hope that's the way politicians will, will go.
0: Donald, you've been incredibly generous with your time and, and... I would just like to say as a young person that this is, I've, I've, the first time I've gotten a podcaster's high in a little while, it's been a lot of fun. And I love hearing these stories, especially about that first generation of, of, of true, truly global entrepreneurs. And, and I know I'll be trading emails with you back and forth, trying to dig deeper into these topics. So thank you very much for being on the Growing Pains podcast. And I know Dave will want to see you out as well.
1: Yes, yeah, so I uh, just wanted to ask you what you're working on now. I mean, uh, you know, you're a young man, so there sh- you know you should be have lots of projects in the hopper at your age. I mean,
2: David, i started but last summer i started working on a book. It's fascinating. It's comparing democracy in poor countries: England, France, U.S., and Canada. I knew England because I lived there. U.S. You can't but know uh, about the U.S. and Canada, of course. I know France. I didn't know fascinating country to, you know, to see how the system works. Or see how, how the system you know, really does not work all that well. But to compare the four countries and to pick up on Matt's points about the institutions that younger people have problems with the institutions, the arrival of social media, what it means for democracy. It's fascinating. I'm enjoying it. I put it aside because I'm halfway through because there are too many questions that, that I need to ponder and I need to, fight, to find out what happens in November, how far social media is going to play uh, in, in that election. But I'm enjoying it. Two months ago, I started working on a book, much like the Irving book, but it's on John Bragg. And that story is absolutely fascinating. John Bragg started with, he, he wasn't born uh, on third base. He actually hit a triple. And the way he did it, we were talking a while ago about new markets and Matt was saying, young people have to understand the internet. If you want to grow, you have to go you have to grow outside New Brunswick. John Bragg controls 40% of blueberry market in the world. And he explained wow. to me, he explained to me that when he started off, he realized the market in Nova Scotia is too small. So he went to Japan. When he went to Japan, they hadn't seen a blueberry. They didn't know what it was, they didn't know what it looked like. It was blue, it was weird. And so he went there 17 times to sell blueberries. Today, he has he controls the market. He's in China, he's in Europe, he has 60% of the market in Europe. So he looked outside of the Maritimes. And I think that's a heck of a lesson learned that I want to explore with him. So that's what I'm working
1: on. Well, we look forward to having you back on, Donal, to talk about that book and other subjects and exposing you to our audience. So we really appreciate you taking the time this morning um, to to uh, work through this with us. Again, thanks a lot.
2: Thanks for having me. Appreciate
0: it. And I'm going to go pick up the Savoie stack and I encourage our listeners to do the same because I'm in. I'm in. I'm going to, I'm going to spend my weekend doing this. So thank you, Donal. <laughs>
2: thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you everybody. See you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George, is engineered by the great Zachary Pelchier, and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.